Wow, I've got to get composed. <laughs> I just want to thank you all for the ministry of your music. Because I think, you know, it's, it's one of those things that outside of Christ, you don't know how to describe how we can worship and in a moment all of us be transported into the presence of God. And how those words that you, you let us in and the, that music that you all let us in really, I don't know, tonight, today Patricia and I were just singing over there and I think just we couldn't contain the tears because those, those words and that message and that heart and that spirit has been so much what we've lived through and we just thank you so much for just helping us remind us of God's grace to us. You all have done us an incredible service by just leading us this way. Why don't we give it up for these guys, huh? Oh boy, okay, just to give me a little bit more time here. <laughs> what I'd like for you to do is maybe just uh, turn to each other two or, in groups of two or three, and I'd like to, for you just to share, up to this point in time, let's just do a quick reality check. What has God been speaking to you about in your quiet times, in your messages? You know, it may not be complete yet. It may be that there's something emerging, you know, in terms of a message or a theme that God's trying to teach you. But just share with one another, what, where, what is God talking to you about up to this point in the week, okay? Go to it.
Let's, uh, let, me, let me bring him back in here. I'm glad you guys like talking to one another. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it, how much you learn? Just maybe just kind of randomly, um, maybe somebody share some of the things that you're, you're learning. Let's just, let's, how's God speaking to you guys so far? Yeah. Uh, one thing Caitlin and I talked about is like us in the workplace. Uh-huh. Right. We allow ourselves to think, well, we're not like bashing on our religion or anything like others may do, but we're also not speaking up about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like I really loved Pat's story of the man she met on the airplane because she talked about her daughters in the way of saying, like, well, God made my Annie this way. Yeah. And just that smooth transition into bringing God into Yeah. Yeah. That's such a that's such a good point, you know. And I know I know when it, you know you I first started out as a Christian, I was always trying to figure out kind of clever openings and ways to kind of get into the conversation. And really now, you know, I mean, you know, now that I'm an old guy, you know, <laughs> I was sharing my testimony one time at a conference like this, and a guy came up to me and he says, "Wow, Mr. Wooldridge, that was an unbelievable." And, you know, testimony and story they shared, and I've always been fascinated by that period of history. <laughs> but I was kind of like, I was, kind of like <laughs> I was ready to take him out on the court, you know, <laughs> you and me, all right, one-on-one <laughs> one one right now. <laughs> but I think what happens is that the more, the more you know God, and and the more the more your life really is an expression of the the truth, the scriptures, and you're living it out, what you find is that you don't need to look for tricky openings because you can talk about just about anything and, 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 and it leads to the Lord. It leads to who you are, you know, and, and leads to who it is, you know, that's inside your life. So great, 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 great get there. Other, other things, other things. Now you get bashed for me. Okay. <laughs> so Josh and I kind of like talking. We're talking about like how in the way we, we feel that God keeps on guiding us right now and guiding us and showing us kind of like where he wants us, what he wants us to do, and, you know, how he's going to use us. And it's pretty cool. It is. It really is. And it's really surprising. I know that, you know, there's a lot in terms of our modern thinking and, and you know, and part of it is just kind of our... our man-centered thinking where we feel like we can, we can chart a path. You know, there's a career ladder and we go from here to here and, and, and I just find that, you know, most of my life has just been kind of a surprise, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it's kind of like I was telling some of the guys at, at uh, dinner the other night, it says my, my, my life has felt more like a series of gigs than it has been a, a career path, you know? Or I go here and then God says, no, I want to do this and I'll do this, you know? And, and then he brings you. And I mean, you know, you look at Daniel's life, and he couldn't have chosen that path, right? But God guided. Other, other thoughts? Awesome, awesome thoughts, guys. Yeah? Um, something I've really learned is God is always going to be there with us through, like, the good and 
Yeah. Right. That's right. It's one of the hardest battles, isn't it? It's one of the hardest battles. It, seem, it seems so simple to say, trust in the Lord. But at the same time, the, the, the fiercest struggle is to trust in the Lord, you know, especially in those times right there. So great, great thought. Yeah. Did you have one? Yeah. Yeah. And sort of um, embracing it now so that when I do come to these um, troubles in my life, that I won't forget about it. That's right. And it'll be absolutely challenged, not because, <clears throat> and, and, and mainly because God wants to take you deeper. That's why He challenges that He wants to take you deeper into that belief of that. You know, rather than saying, okay, God is great, <coughs> kind of got it, but He wants you to understand, no, yeah. <laughs> He is, right? So, awesome. Yes, uh-huh. Yeah. It's investing in trusting in God that it pays off. That's great. That's great. A couple others. Yeah. You know, like, like this whole week in Christ's life in the beginning, like hearing Daniel's story, to me, like life has been, like, there's been times where I felt like I was just in a wandering desert. Yeah. of like the times where I've been you know away from things like challenge and church and was completely alone I feel like God had abandoned me but wasn't I wasn't calling out to him yeah and so realizing like in those times like you have friends you can call on you know people and challenge or other people like and then just also like his uh, strong hold on his conviction mm-hmm. you know? for me there's been times where I'm like I'll compromise on the little things and I think it's not a big deal but it's like a small wound if left untreated will begin to fester and spread to the rest of the body. Hmm. That's a great point. Great point. Getting the point like take the little things and take care of them. Really. Yeah. Yeah. There's one yeah. Sure. Yeah, it's true in life. It's the little things that adds up. You know, it's, it's the little habits that you begin to stack one on top of the other that begin to form your life, you know, one at a time. So that's, that's a great point. Last one. Somebody else. Yeah. Um, I think I'm learning that uh, I think something that I struggle with is like praising God all the time uh-huh. and not only 
Um, yeah. I'm reading Daniel, um, and I'm learning that, like, for example, like, he was explaining that he, uh, he, like, it got to the point where he became an animal right. for him to, like, actually recognize God's word. And I was like, wow, like, there's many points in my life where, like, I became bad and to, like, recognize huh. God is supreme and, like, sure. will is greater than Sure. Him. Yeah, there is. Aren't, that's, that's a good point. There are times when we we almost become like that wild lost beast, you know, eating grass, and we don't even realize we're living that way until, you know, God humbles us and opens our eyes. So that's awesome. Well, <clears throat> let me just, a uh, little mental break here, okay? This is good, but I was just looking at a, a piece of research the other day, and uh, they, were, they were testing different universities and how different uh, students from different universities were going to respond to different sorts of uh, experiential challenges. So the, te the, the, the test question on this was, what would you do if you came back from uh, an all-day hike and found a scorpion in your tent? Well, this, there was a student from Chico there that said, well, that's a really easy answer. You just kind of go in there and you step on this thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, then the, the, the USC student says, well, I would crush it with my boot from Nordstrom's. <laughs> then, then there was, then there was, the, then there was, uh, where's my, where's my uh, soon-to-be Marine friend from, uh, yeah, all right. You know, I was talking to him this morning. He said, well, that's easy for a Marine. He said, I'd go in there, I'd rip off its tail, and I'd eat the thing. <laughs> There was one other. One, there was one other school in the test, and it was from a student from Stanford. And he says, "Well, that's that's really an easy answer." He said, uh, "I'd call down to the front desk and say, what's a tent doing in my room?'" <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so <laughs> anyway. <laughs> That, that's, kind of, that's kind of a derivative on the old story about how many Stanford students does it take to change a light bulb, right? You remember that one? It just takes one. They reach up and hold the light bulb and wait for the world to revolve around them. <laughs> so, 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 any Stanford people in here? <laughs> Gosh, you guys are great. Well, I want to talk about, you know, we've been talking about kind of the Babylon as a force in the world and, and really a force that's going to be in a kingdom that is at odds with God till the end days. And we've talked about this young 15-year-old boy and how he lands in Babylon and how his life, how he fought against the strategies of Babylon and survived it. But what I'd like to do is today is kind of go to the other side of the equation and talk about the other primary character in the book of Daniel, uh, outside of God and Daniel, which is Nebuchadnezzar. And, and look into Daniel's relationship with Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar's spiritual journey. You know, we, when you look at the scriptures and you think about people coming to Christ and people responding to God, you think of the great saints you know, or you go to the New Testament and you think of, you know, the blind man, the lame man, you know, <clears throat> Nicodemus, all of the different stories. But how many of you ever thought about the spiritual journey of Nebuchadnezzar? 
the great king of Babylon. Well, I want to share that with you today because I have a conviction that, and I think Daniel understood it too after a period of time, that one of the reasons that God had taken him from Jerusalem to Babylon was for Nebuchadnezzar. You ever have that, you ever have that sense in your life sometimes that you've entered into a person's life just for that reason? You know, we've all probably had that same. Or somebody's come into our life at just the right time to, to direct us to the Lord, right? So I want to look at this and just think about this because in some ways it's an improbable thing. It's unimaginable. You know, there was no way that that little boy could have thought, I've got a strategy here to reach the king of Babylon, you know? And really, without God, it's an impossible thing. And so I want us to, to look at this journey and think, too, that God could be moving us in our lives into positions where we are going to intersect with people's lives. And whether it's for a lifetime or for a moment, that those encounters are from God for the reason of reaching that person and doing that. One thing is happening in our country right now, in our world, is that... <clears throat> is people, people are drifting, in my mind, further and further away from Christ. There was a period of time, honestly, when I first became a Christian, that the soil of our country was so prepared that if you went out onto a campus like the University of Texas, you could literally walk up to three people and, that are total strangers, and one of the three would accept Christ on the spot. And our whole campus ministry was just predicated on just kind of going out and talking to people. And, and you know, and at the end of the week, it would be like, there would be dozens of new people uh, that have come to Christ. But what happened slowly then, over the next decade, is that you began to see that, well, it's, it, it didn't take a conversation. It, it took maybe a few Bible studies. And then it took like several years. As our whole nation kind of drifted further and further, kind of from a place where they were in Christ to further and further away. And so what happened was that when you think about this here, when, you're, when, when, the, when the world is closer to Christ, then the issue of faith is a lot of times is the, the ministry is of just telling people about Christ. Because all they need now is the final words and understanding to know how to place their faith in Christ. But as the world drifted further away, the words were irrelevant. They didn't make sense. It wasn't that they were antagonistic. It was just like it didn't make any sense. It was like those guys in the fraternity that I was telling you about. It wasn't that they were antagonistic to Christ and Christianity. It was just like it didn't have a place in their brain. It was just like it was a strange thing. I, Patricia and I had a friend and that um, we met a long time ago, and she's come to Christ now many years later. But when Patricia first met her, and began to talk to Tammy about Christ and the stories of the Bible, Tammy would just look at her and says, you believe that? But it wasn't so much an antagonistic. It was like, how, what? You know, you believe that stuff? You know, it was like it was just so irrelevant in terms of the concepts. So what I'm finding is that the further people are away from Christ, then the more important it is for you to have a relationship with them. And the first thing that they need to see in you is the hope of Christ. And, is, and because lot, people are looking for answers, aren't they? They're looking to try to figure out just how to survive this crazy world. 
And so somebody that comes to them that is just exhibiting hope, you know, is, is going to be an attractive person. And, 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 as, and as you begin to exhibit that hope and demonstrate that hope, then what's going to happen is that they're going to move. And all along, you're loving the person. And there's going to come a point in time where, like, the, well, like it says, like John the Baptist says, I must decrease, he must increase. And there'll come a point in time when the handoff is, in a sense, made from a person primarily focused on who you are to begin to focus on who Christ is. Does that, make, does that make sense there? And what you're going to find in our world is that you're going to have people that are all over the spectrum. And so you, there's not one thing that you do that say, this is the formula, this is how you start. You have to discern where a person is on their journey in order to understand probably the appropriate thing to do. And so as I unpack Nebuchadnezzar's life, I'm going to identify 10 turning points in Nebuchadnezzar's life where he goes from Daniel to the point where he claims the Most High God is his own. And, I, and so as you look at his journey, I want you to kind of use it maybe as kind of a template or a map or um, a framework of thinking about the people in your life and where they might be on the journey. So that if you're thinking, okay, there at step three, then maybe the thing that I need to be praying thinking about and how to interact with them is how, how do I help them get to point four? Does that make sense? And if, and, if it's a, and if it's a person that you've never met before and you've only met and you're only going to have a brief interaction with them, then you, if you're discerning, then you know, God will say, God will help you understand this is, this is what this person needs at this point in time to move, to keep moving toward Christ. And, and so all of us, what Paul says, in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 5, he says, you know, some are going to sow, some are going to water, some are going to cultivate, some are going to reap. But it's God who causes the growth. And, and, and so we think a lot of times about evangelism as just the reaping part, seeing a person come to Christ. But in this world, probably we'll spend maybe even more time as the world moves along in the sowing stages. Maybe watering where our other person has sown something. Maybe cultivating it a little bit more. And then somewhere down the line, somebody else is going to reap. If you're seeing people come to Christ, you're reaping probably what somebody else has sown. And so our job is really to participate as, as kind of this group of farmers, so to speak, with God and looking at the crop of the world and doing the right thing. And, and God's, God, God can do this. Last week, I was at a conference in Chicago on innovation, and one of the speakers was from one of the largest uh, uh, agricultural companies in the world. And they were talking about how to increase the yield of crops. And he said, you know, he says, we've got, he says, in the last three years, we've gone from zero to 25,000 farms, and we're on our way to a million farms. And he says, what we can do now is as we plant on these farms, we can locate every single seed we plant by GPS. And within a square meter, we know the soil conditions and the weather so that when we come back and water and fertilize, we can do exactly what that's, the seeds in that square meter need. 
And if it's better to have this variety of that seed on, on, on this plot, we can drop those kinds of seeds there automatically and drop another <laughs> kind of seed right over there. But God has that kind of precision. He knows, he knows the GPS of every single human being on earth and exactly what they need. And our job is to participate with him to give them exactly what they need at, at, their, at, the, at the part of their life cycle. So let's, uh, we're going to go through a, a number of scriptures here. And what I would encourage you to do as we go through the scriptures today is maybe just put a little margin in your Bible if you want to, to just kind of identify the steps. So let's start then with Daniel chapter 1. Seems like we'll never get out of Daniel 1, right? Somebody was saying, wow, you know, I went back and read it, and I realized you've only talked about Daniel 1 so far. <laughs> I, you know, I'd encourage you to go to the end of the movie, okay, sometime on your own. But <laughs> so step one, Daniel's age 15. And, um, and so here it says here, in Daniel 1, 17 through 21, it says, As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king and every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So interesting thing here, he's 15 years old. This is kind of like the final job interview, <laughs> you know, that they've, they've gone through school, and now they're, they're kind of at their final exam, and, 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 you know, when you look at this, Nebuchadnezzar did not even know who these guys were. You know, they were, they, were, they, were, they were just a few out of the hundred. And they were going through kind of the final interview and vetting process before they were placed into roles throughout the kingdom. But what God had done over the previous three years was that he had prepared these young men so that when they stood before the king, that he could see the quality of their lives, their character, their intelligence, their wisdom, their ability, their giftedness. And, you know, and I can't say that after this interview, he remembered their names, but he knew that these guys stood out head and shoulders over them. I, I, I do that a lot with organizations where I'm sizing up and interviewing and assessing leadership and talent all the time. And I can tell you that there are certain young people that will come through the door in the interview process and in, and, in, and in kind of the vetting process, and they stand out head and shoulders over everybody else. I don't know much about them other than that, but you can tell character, intelligence, quality, capability, preparation. <clears throat> and so I think, you know, the very first step is that you have to be connected and you have to be noticed. You have to have a relationship. This is an actually kind of an interesting bit of advice for you all that are stepping out into the professional world after graduation. Is say, well, how do I get a hearing? How do I get to a point where people will hear about, you know, will want to hear about the Lord from me? Well, I think one of the first things that you do is that you prepare yourself 
in a sense, to be noticed. Not in a, not in a self-promoting way, but that the quality of your preparation is such that when you stand before the kings, they, 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 they see who you are. They, they, they see an obvious quality there, and, and they want to interact with you. I think about that from um, even, even as you go along and you go into a new situation. Uh, about five years ago, I started working with this current company. And um, um, there were a few people that I knew. But by and large, the company had grown so much that I, 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 other than a handful, I didn't know anybody else. And it was presumptuous for me to come in both to start preaching, you know, and, and also to kind of assume that everybody wanted to listen to me. <laughs> Even though I was there to be an advisor on, on leadership matters for the organization. And so what God led me to do was to interact with each company and begin to teach and begin to interact, you know, and, 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 and uh, coach and mentor, and, and in, in, in settings large and small, people began to um, appreciate the preparation that I had and the experience that I had, and what it did was that it began to create the connection that I could teach, you know, teach from and go into a deeper relationships with. So it's interesting here that God, I don't know if it, was Dan, it wasn't Daniel's strategy necessarily, but the way it worked out was that the three years that he had spent preparing himself got him to a place where when he was presented to Nebuchadnezzar, all of a sudden he was noticed out of the crowd because of the quality of his professional life, his personal life. And I would say that in your own world, as you go out from college, if, if, you're, if, you're, la if you're slack or lacking in, in these qualities, you're not going to get a hearing. And, and, the, and the relevance and the impact of what you say is going to be very diminished. It's going to be discredited. So that was step one to Daniel. It was that, that Daniel had to be noticed in a sense, not in the sense of, hey, look, I'm over here, but noticed in a sense that his life was so outstanding that it commanded respect. I mean, even though he was still kind of in the internship program here, you know, they were saying, okay, that guy's got potential. Now, let's go on to Daniel 2, 27 and 28. Here, Nebuchadnezzar had just had this crazy dream. It was disturbing. And it was so disturbing that he just he needed to understand it. And so he put out a challenge to all of the court magicians and the sorcerers and all of his advisors and said, I need somebody to interpret the dream. And they said, well, tell us a dream, and then we'll interpret it for you. And he said, no, 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 no. He said, I know you guys are kind of sandbagging me here. You tell me the dream and you interpret it, then I'll know if you really <laughs> have the right stuff. And they were saying, oh, and this is impossible. And, and, every, and, and so they were, they were in danger of losing their lives because of, of what he considered their incompetence. So somehow, word got out throughout the company, so to speak, and it got down to the intern pool here. <laughs> and Daniel says, I you know, I think... I think I might be able to do something about that. Could I set up an appointment, <laughs> you know, with the king? And, and he does, right? And so he, 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 he gets together with his buddies. They pray about this. God gives them the dream and the interpretation. And then Daniel comes in to Nebuchadnezzar and says, 
Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be the latter days. And Daniel revealed the dream and the interpretation. What's going to happen a lot of times is that if, if a person has never then, they know you, but maybe they've never, they, there's not even a concept in their mind that there is a God. And what Daniel's done right here is that he hasn't, he hasn't really, say, laid out the four spiritual laws or the bridge to life or kind of shared a gospel presentation or his testimony. He's merely planting the seed here that there is a God in heaven. And, and so I think about that um, because a lot of times it's enough to kind of help a person move to the next step and begin to wrestle with the fact that God is there and he's not silent. After 9-11, um, I had done an event uh, about four months after 9-11 in New York City with a group of executives. And what we did was that one of our clients had an office building that was right across the street from Ground Zero. And in, you know, four months later, they're still excavating and, and, you know, uh, and taking out bodies and, and things like this. And one of the companies had the contract to do that. So we were in their offices right across the street that somehow remarkably had not been damaged. And uh, one of the presenters was a, um, an emergency responder because the whole point of the conference that I had, the seminar I had, was on how to lead in times of a crisis. And so we'd, we'd, we had talked already to uh, young cadets at West Point who were getting ready to be deployed. They were the first class to go straight from graduation to the front lines. And then we were talking to the firemen and policemen and, and the things. That, and so one of, the, one of the emergency responders was sharing a story, and he never talked about this before. And in the middle of it, he just could not continue on from the pain and the despair. And, and so I'm facilitating the meeting. I don't know what to do because I think he's not going to be able to go on. And uh, what I did was then I just went to the front of the room and just embraced the guy and, and, just, and just said, you know, there's a God in heaven who loves you, and, and, I, and I sat there and prayed for him in front of the group. Now, I don't know what his, what his faith story was, because he just left the room, and as I looked out the window a few minutes later, he was walking by himself, head down, crying, walking down the street. But I think that there are times when we just need to kind of let people know that there's a God in heaven. At one of our, our, our leadership institutes that we do all the time, that we do in Colorado about once a month, we, st we started just an optional session. I said, look, this is not, this is not uh, mandatory. This is off the clock. But if you want to come in before breakfast, you know, and, and then what we would do is that we would just, I would just share some things from the scriptures and just say, we've been talking about leadership and the impact of people. But what's really, what's probably most critical about it is what God thinks of this, you know, and, and, and what your relationship with God is like. Totally optional thing, but the whole point was, how do we just kind of plant the seeds to people that God is there? 
And it doesn't have to be anything big. It's just, it's just like Daniel says, he didn't say anything more than there's a God in heaven. I had another, I had another uh, executive uh, who was retiring from his company, and he was so concerned about the future of his company that he would call me, and, he, and he'd be in deep worry about it. And, and I would be going down to Phoenix about once every two or three months to meet with him and his team. And that was one of the, one of the things in the conversation. I'd say, Bill, Bill, you know, there's a God in heaven, you know, who can, who can help you and serve you, you know, in, in, in taking care of these worries. So that's step two. You know, sometimes all we're doing at this point in time is that we're not trying to kind of back up the truck, you know, and unload the, all of the freight, but we, we just say, we plant the seed to say, there is a God in heaven. And get that. Then the third thing, we go to later on into Daniel, 246 and 247. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. And Nebuchadnezzar within that very conversation began to make a move from like to Daniel to that there is a God to there's God is in you. And, you know, and so that's one thing that we, we want to pray about is to say, you know, do people see the light in us? Do people see the aroma of Christ in us? You know, do they, do they sense the presence of God in us? Nebuchadnezzar did right away. And he said, you know, a lot of gods, but your God, your God is the God of gods. Now, where were the, where, where were the vessels? They were among all the other gods. And all of a sudden, he's taking Daniel's God and saying, your God, and putting it on the top shelf now, right? Your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer. And you see the progression, the movement, even in his spiritual life here, even within a conversation. It was, it, it was interesting is that after the fire, I had, I had written to um, all of the presidents of that company and, and to tell them not only about what had happened, that we had had a fire, but to just begin to share with them some of the things that we felt like God was teaching us through the fire. And uh, it was interesting that I would be getting word back from people that I, I, I didn't know what their spiritual orientation was, but they would come back and say, you know, it's really obvious that God is working through you and for you. And, you know, and so what we want to do is have the kind of relationship with people where the work of God is, is visible in our, in our lives. Unfortunately, a lot of times when we think about ministering to people, what we want to do is we want to present this finished product that's perfect and without blemish and saying, this is what it means to be a Christian. What people really need to see is the work of God going on in a broken person, <laughs> in a hurting person, in a person that's not perfect. And, and then say, oh, man, God is working in you. 
I, just before I came here, I got a, a text message from one of the presidents of the companies. And he said, you know, he said, I just wanted you to know for what it's worth that your story and you and Patricia's lives are making a difference. You know, it was, it was a totally a non-professional setting, you know, but he said that. And, and it was interesting in South Carolina, just a couple of months ago, I was out there with the COO of our company and we were meeting with one of the companies that we own and their management team. And, and the COO was talking, he was giving a little workshop on work-life balance and all the different things. And he'd done all this research on all, this, all, all the areas that you're supposed to have in balance in your life and work. And he got down to like this one last one. And he says, when well, he said, frankly, I don't even know how to address this one. But he says, all the research shows that you should have your spiritual life together. <laughs> he says, I have no advice on this area. But if you do need advice on your spiritual life, talk to Dan. <laughs> you know, and I'm thinking, I, I've had probably two conversations with him, maybe about, about, this, you know, about faith and spiritual things. But I think what happens is that people begin to see God in you. And, and begin to recognize that. And, and, and again, it wasn't demeaning. It wasn't critical. It was just really kind of an authentic and honest thing where he said, talk to Dan. And I think that, that's, I think that God can do that through you. Well, Daniel, you know, Nebuchadnezzar has the dream. And part of the dream was that, you know, the head of this statue was going to be, this beast was going to be gold. And I think that he didn't really take to heart what Daniel was saying. And then so eventually what he did was that he went ahead and created his own statue, about 90, 96 feet high by about 9 feet wide, and set it down in the center of Babylon. And he made a, he made a statue of, him, of himself um, and, and, as, as kind of a, as a deity. And, and probably for political reasons and otherwise, his advisor says, oh, we got a great idea that we can build onto this. Why don't we assemble all of the people and, and, make, and, and, and instruct them that the law of the land is that they need to bow down. And anybody that doesn't bow down to this idol will, will be killed, will be executed. I think that some of, these, uh, some of these professionals were people that Daniels had spared. Because previously, right, when they couldn't interpret the dream, the threat was if somebody couldn't interpret, tell and reveal the dream, all of those guys would be killed. And Daniel did it, and rather than wiping out the, the, the professional competition, he spared all their lives. But I think those guys still had some professional jealousy, perhaps, you know? And, um, and so people do say, well, this is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego here, in this case. Uh, where was Daniel, okay? Because they think, well... And, and historians believe that Daniel was on the far side of an empire because there had been kind of a province that had risen up in rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar, and it was being quelled, and it had to be brought back under control and under management again, and so Daniel had been assigned to go to the other reaches of the empire when this was happening, and so he wasn't here at the time. And of course, the three guys didn't, st didn't st um, bow, so they end up in a little hot situation, right? <laughs> <laughs> And so, but step four is interesting because step four still involves Nebuchadnezzar. So think about this. You're the king. You're doing your thing. You know, you're doing your king thing. And, you know, you're interviewing interns and kind of trying to find guys. 
and you think these guys are kind of impressive, and then all of them, one of them surprises you with his remarkable ability to tell you your dreams and interpret the dreams and begin to kind of say things, you know, and you're not expecting this from now, somebody that's maybe 17, 18, 19 years old, to say there's a God in heaven, and it kind of like, okay, okay, you know, I, I get it, I think I get it, you know. And then, and then he has his buddies, and they end up in, in, in this fiery furnace. And so Daniel 3, 26 through 30, it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a degree, decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be from limb, torn from limb to limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon." The point here is that up to this point in time, Daniel was the one that had the interaction. But now Daniel's friends stepped in and, and had, a, had their role in their interaction with Nebuchadnezzar. And it's their testimony through not only their conviction, but also through what they were willing to suffer that Nebuchadnezzar took another step one of the things about it is we were, earlier we were talking about how, you know, some sow, some water, you know, some reap. Evangelism is rarely the responsibility of an individual, a lone ranger. It's really always the responsibility in, in, in God's design, for the most part, to be something that the body of Christ does. And it may be that you serve a person and, and help them take a step in this this, this year of their life and somebody else in another year of their life. But another powerful thing that happens is when people see others like you. You know, they may be able to write one of you all off as just kind of weird spiritual fanatic, you know. But then when they see others and they begin to see the love of the community and they see the diversity and yet the grace what it does is that it amplifies the message and how important it is for you to not just be alone in the relationship, but when you have opportunity to bring your friend into exposure with the others around you. Does that make sense? Because now it's like, look at, they're really different people, all, all different kinds of people, all different things, but there's this commonality. And I think about that. I, I, I remember meeting in Dallas one day <clears throat> and with a guy that I'd been discipling. And he's a president of a company, and his, he had been developing his successor. And so as we were out to lunch at the airport, he brought along his successor. 
And Huck decided to say, hey, let's pray. Now, Huck never has done that, but he did this in front of Mike. And, and it was interesting because what it did was that Huck brought me into the relationship with this other guy, you know, and that in turn began to impact him because it was not like not just one or the other, it was all of us together. Um, the same guy, the COO that I was talking about that, you know, said I should give spiritual advice, the night before, he was at, we were at dinner with two other uh, executives, and, and, and I didn't know, but it turned out that the other two executives were followers of Christ. And as we began to talk about the meaning of work and how we take care of people and, you know, how the role that faith plays in that, Jim is sitting over here listening to all of this, and he's got tremendous respect for everybody in the group. And so it's, it's really interesting that in the last months I've seen movement on his part because now the message has been amplified through the testimony of the body. And so, you know, I think don't underestimate the power of doing it together and inviting others into your lives together. In our, in our own community, uh, after the fire, um, I think one of the most powerful testimonies was um, the uh, Southern Baptist Relief Ministry that showed up in Black Forest. Hundreds and hundreds of volunteers and all of their power equipment from all over the country coming in and helping clear away the fire damage and the debris and you know the women spending time in tears and prayer with uh, the ladies in the community sifting through the ashes. And the, the love that they showed was so powerful that a number of our neighbors came to Christ as a result of that because it was like these are unbelievable people. I mean, it's not just that they served us, but how they loved us. And so this is a powerful thing, is that at some point in time as a person is traveling toward Christ, bring them into contact with others. Okay, you follow me? All right. Well, let's move on here because then eventually... Nebuchadnezzar had another troubling dream about 30 years later. And this one, this, one, this one was disturbing to him. By this time, though, it was 30 years. Daniel is about 49 years old. And he's been serving Nebuchadnezzar now for almost three decades. Now, it's kind of rare that anybody works in a company for 30 years, you know. You may, have a, you may have family relationships. Uh, you will have family relationships that you know, endure like that, but generally not so much in the workplace anymore. But here's an unusual thing where Daniel, the slave boy, has now become the most trusted advisor of the most powerful man on earth. And it's not just that he's advisor. A relationship of care between the two of them has formed. Because when... Nebuchadnezzar calls him in and tells him about this dream. Daniel immediately, it says here, then Daniel, in 419, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. And so they had a close enough relationship now, even though Nebuchadnezzar was not a follower of God yet, 
that when he asked Daniel to do something, and Daniel was dismayed because he, he understood the import of the, meeting, uh, of the dream. And he, he could read Daniel so much that he could see the alarm on his face, and yet there was a caring enough relationship from Nebuchadnezzar to Daniel now that he said, look, you know, I, I see your alarm. Don't worry about it. And Daniel's saying, man, I just, this is not good news, and I wish it wasn't for you. And you can see in that little exchange there the quality of the relationship that this follower of God had with the most powerful man on earth and how over the years now it had gone from just being his intern and advisor to really there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a touching concern in the relationship, isn't there? And I think that's one of the things that we want to pray for in our relationship with people around us is that it gets to the point where it's not like there's some sort of spiritual project. It's something where you're friends. You truly love each other. You truly appreciate each other. You know, you truly enter into each other's lives for one another. I think that's one of the things that we've seen with, through the fire is that people that work, you know how it is in most neighborhoods? Who knows the people across the street and next door, you know? They drive up, hit the automatic garage door opener, it goes up, they drive in, it closes, and that's the last you see of them, right? That's about the relation. But I think what happened within the fire was that all of these people within square miles around us, we began to gather them in our home for dinners, potluck dinners initially, to cry and complain about insurance companies and things like this. <laughs> and eventually it was like helping one another. And even though most of them don't know the Lord, there was, they, they cared for us, we cared for them. And that caring then now has begun to kind of create the opportunity for a deeper, deeper exchange in our, in our lives. And so I think, about, I think about our neighbors across the street, Paul and Terry Huntsman, who, even though they'd lived across the street and we saw them and they were nice, it was only in the months leading up to the fire that we actually had dinner with them for the first time. And they always loved our dogs. I think they loved our dogs and our kids more than they knew us. But, but, but eventually, you know, as a result of the caring relationship, Paul and Terry have come to Christ in the aftermath of this. And so think about the timelines. Think about the relationships, you know. And, 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 and what will happen is that people will begin to recognize that God is in you. And because of the care, even people that don't know God will come up and say, would you pray for me? I get, I get messages from presidents like that all the time. And say, they'll text me and say, would you pray for me? So, you know, they're not there yet, but now something is happening because there's this mutual care. And what happens then in step six then, in Daniel 4.22, Daniel has to take a deep breath now and say, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong, and your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And he goes on to say, really, this dream is about you, and, and it's got some tough news in it. But what happens is that you get to the point where even now with a person that doesn't know Christ, the relationship is authentic and strong enough that you can have brutally honest conversations with one another about what's going on in life. 
You can, you can begin, you can, because they trust you enough that you can give them feedback and they can talk to you. You know, and ask you hard questions. And what you've done is that you've built a bridge of love that can bear the weight of truth. The trouble with a lot of our communication, I think, with people in evangelism, in sharing Christ, is that it's all about the communication and the communication technique. A lot of modern evangelism techniques came out of marketing and sales, the science of marketing and sales. And so it's all about having the answers, the comebacks, the, you know, all of this sort of stuff and kind of the smooth opening and kind of the close and all of this sort of stuff, when really true dialogue with the human being isn't like that. Don't you feel used and manipulated when you, when you feel that happening to you? But when you've, got, when you've got somebody that cares for you enough that they can, they can, they can, that you can be there so secure in your love for them that you can take the hard stuff that you'll say, the warnings that you'll give them, you know, the expression of concern about where this is heading, then you've got something there that will help them open up to the good news. Because the good news isn't good until you can confront the bad. So, you know, I, 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 was, I was coming back. We were, we've been doing some training with our, um, some of my leaders as we were preparing for the Gettysburg event. And uh, we had just finished dinner. And these guys, you know, they just go straight from dinner over to the bar in the hotel. And so I'm going by, and they're kind of like, come on in here. Okay. So I, I go in there, and I'm sitting there with Andy, and I'm sitting there with Shane. And we're talking about the day and everything is going on. And I've got, I know I've got a good relationship with them. So I just said, hey, guys, you know, tell me, tell me about your journey of faith. What, you know, what is faith like in your world? You know, tell me your story. And they kind of fumbled around. Well, nobody asked me that. You know, well, you know, I, I went to church some when I was a kid, you know, and this sort of thing like this. And it was interesting because then they would turn it right around and say, well, tell me, what's your story? And then I'd share my story, and they go, that's nothing like my story. <laughs> you, know? you know, they're kind of puzzled about it. But what happens is that now we've got this, you know, we, we've gotten to this point where we can sit there, you know, while, while they're, you know, drinking a beer there in, in the hotel bar, and we can have this kind of a conversation, and there's no threat to it, you know. But it's strong enough now that we can be, that they will really want to listen on this. There was another guy that I was talking with that he had come to one of our leadership institutes. His name was Sal. Brutal. Oh, my gosh, he was brutal. And, um, you know, he'd, he'd gotten all these assessments and feedback from all of his, the people that work for him, and they had just ripped him to shreds for his behavior. Of course, he comes in, you know, I'm, I'm going to do the debrief on his assessments, you know, and, and kind of tell him what the meaning of these reports and this feedback is. And he, I mean, he comes in the door, and the first, the first words out of his mouth are obscenities. And probably like 90% of the words for the next 15 minutes are unprintable. As he's, he's explaining to me what those results really mean and what he thinks and what he's going to do to these people when he gets back. 
So, I don't know, God gave me the presence of mind to just kind of excerpt some of his choice phrases, and I said, you, blankety blank, 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 Sal, are really the problem. <laughs> and, and it was like he just kind of came down, but I think that what happened was that over, over time, we would really develop this relationship where we could talk like this, and he could begin to see that his core problem was what was going on in his heart. That it wasn't just his education or his professionalism or his people, but it was who he was from the inside out in terms of his beliefs. And so, it, it, so you know, what we've got to do is that we've got to have an opportunity to do that. So that was step six. So then step seven then, Daniel took it even a little step further in Daniel 4.24. O king, it is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the king. So it's not only that he could spell out the bad news because he now had a bridge of love that could handle the weight of the truth. Now Daniel is making an incredible transition here in Nebuchadnezzar's life. He says, I've watched you, and I see what God is doing, and I want you to understand it's not me who's talking to you, it's God. So all this time, Nebuchadnezzar's been watching Daniel, isn't he, and his friends. And God's been kind of out there, and he's observing it all out here. And Daniel now sees that it's time for this turn for Nebuchadnezzar to quit looking at Daniel and to think, God is speaking to you. You've watched God in my life. You've watched God in the life of my friends. Now God is speaking to you. Again, shortly after 9-11, I was sitting with one of my, felt, my colleagues in, in New York. We were, it's a different trip, but we were getting ready to meet with um, a company there. And we're, we were sitting in the, <clears throat> the hotel that was kind of right, uh, right across the way from Ground Zero, and we're having dinner late at night. And Jim is a brilliant guy that's worked with the Center for Creative Leadership, um, I think a, a PhD from Duke in Leadership, um, all, all of this sort of stuff, and uh, was battling cancer also at the same time. And um, so we're eating dinner, and I said, Jim, you know, I know what's going on. just want you to know that I'm praying for you, but I also feel like God is speaking to you. And he just kind of put down his drink and just kind of looked at me and says, really? What is God saying to me? I mean, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, he, he wasn't trying to be facetious. He was like, do you know? What, what is it that he's saying? Can you tell me what he's saying to me? And so we had this conversation through the, the rest of the evening uh, about God and God's power and presence in his life and what I felt like God can do. And I think, you know, there's going to come a point in time where we have to help turn a person from us talking to him, you know, or us talking to her as if the conversation is about us, and we have to help a person's heart turn to understand it's God speaking to you. Can you hear what God is saying to you? And, 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 and I was telling that with one of my other presidents the other day who had really gone through a couple of really tough leadership assignments of turning around some really, really tough companies. And I said, you know, I think, I think what, what I see is that God is prepared you and assigned you 
for such a time as this. Well, what will happen, though, is that when people begin to think that their God is speaking to them, there's still going to be some resistance. And so now what's going to happen is that there's got to be something that's going to happen, you, generally speaking, that, that really kind of opens up the person's heart to God. And with Nebuchadnezzar, it did, because he soon forgot what Daniel said in, in the message. And, and, the, and the, message, the message of the dream was that if, if Nebuchadnezzar didn't humble himself, that he was going to go through a period of becoming like an animal and a beast in the field and would be basically covered with dew and would eat grass for seven years. And his heart got lifted up, and boom, it's kind of like this madness set over him. Can you imagine that? The, the most powerful man on earth has this episode of madness that lasts seven years where he's crawling around like a beast in the field, eating grass, covered with dew, totally incoherent. And, and, and so what I'm saying is that what's going to happen is that you have to watch, because I think in the lives of your friends, there will come a point in time where there is some sort of precipitous event. You can't cause that event as much as sometimes we try to persuade and create tension. Don't worry about that. You know, God will create the tension that's going to open up people's lives. And you need to be there, and you'll see that there'll be a humbling experience. And then Nebuchadnezzar humbles himself. Now, in these last two steps, Daniel is completely out of the picture. Because what's happened now is Nebuchadnezzar's come to the point where he is now interacting directly with God. And he sees God working in his own life, Daniel 4, 1 through 3, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Isn't that amazing? Now here's the king saying, God is doing these things for me. <laughs> He's not only hearing the works of God, words of God, but he's recognizing the work of God toward him. And in the final step, he comes to the point, it's not just that God is doing things for me and speaking to me. He is my God. And so in Daniel 4, 37, 34 through 37, I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Unbelievable spiritual journey of the most powerful man of that generation. But again, we can't even say that it was Daniel's witness, was it? It wasn't Daniel's evangelism. It was God at work in the life of this man. Daniel had a part. You know, his friends had a part. But God causes the growth, doesn't he? And I think, let's take the pressure off of ourselves in our witness to the world. We do our part. We ask God to be dis help us to be discerning in terms of the part that we're playing. But God causes the growth. 
So we, we co-labor with God in this process. And so, you know, I would just encourage you to kind of go back through these things and think about your different friends. And think about where they might be along these 10 steps. And what, we, what would I encourage you to do is pray that God would help you help them take the next step. I know that when we were on our campus ministries, we always did that. We would, we would, we would write down the names of those that we, that we were loving to Christ. And what we did was that we sat down and think, where are these people in relationship to this journey? And then when we would get together to pray, we would spend a quarterly day of prayer and fasting for all of these students. We knew them by name, and we said, okay, this person is here. Let's pray that in this next semester, they'll move to here. And this one will move to here. And it was, it was remarkable, the spiritual progression that we saw of people on campus. Because we were, and so then when you're interacting with everybody, you're interacting with everybody very individually regarding where they are in their journey. To you, to Christ, to Christ in you, to Christ in your friends, to caring relationships, building bridges of love. God is speaking to you. Being there during a humbling experience helping them see God is working in their life, and then celebrating when they say, he's my God. Father, thank you so much for uh, this incredible ministry that you've given to us. And Lord, our, our lives are just, uh, there's so many people in our lives that we're just beginning to know, others that we've known for years others that we'll hopefully know for the rest of our lives. And I pray that in every individual you come into our, that you bring into our lives, you would help us to be present with you, to think, where is this person on the journey? And how do we help them take the next step? And help them to know the love of God and the presence of God in the process. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.